0: Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self help, self improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know how, or just some good old fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Evie Pompouros, who is a former Secret Service agent, a television host you may recognise from Spy Games, a US media contributor covering everything from national security, law enforcement and crime, and she's also an author. Her book, Becoming Bulletproof, what can I say about this book? Well, this is honestly one of the best books I've read in a while, and you may be thinking... Emma, you always say this, but that's only because, and I genuinely mean this, I will only ever share books, authors and experts with you who I think are exemplary and deserve your time and attention. So when I first saw this book, the tagline for which is Life Lessons from a Secret Service Agent, I just felt very excited because in my life, there is no context within which I could ever imagine coming into contact with someone who has shielded presidents from threats and everything that goes with it. Like, can you imagine, when would I ever come across somebody who has stood between a president and a bullet? That's what, you know, that's what you sign up for. And I was fascinated This, So obviously, I got in touch with Evie and asked if she would come on the podcast and have a conversation with me for you, my most excellent listeners. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that I could have easily recorded about 10 hour long conversations with Evie about wildly different subjects such as the breadth of her expertise but also the range of her knowledge like she really knows what she's talking about doesn't matter where the conversation goes she is incredibly well read and very knowledgeable. In her career she's been through rigorous physical and mental training for the New York Police Department and Secret Service. She has specialized in interrogation which led her to take a master's degree in forensic psychology and she has prepared herself to deal with some really stressful situations and emergencies and actually there is a passage in the book, the book actually opens with her dealing with one of the most stressful situations you can ever think of. But I'll leave that for you to discover for yourself. I couldn't tell it as well as she does. As an interrogator, she's also been in the room with some of the worst criminals you can think of. Yet her ability to read people and smell a smell a rat, you might say, is absolutely fascinating. And she shares some of those insights with me on the show. The conversation Evie and I have on this podcast not only explains who she is and why she was drawn to her field, but really focuses on how one can empower themselves, how one can build mental and emotional strength, why triggers are actually helpful, and how it's possible to become more emotionally and physically resilient, and a more confident and assured version of ourselves. And I just want to say this too. When I started to research Evie, I didn't think for a second about the idea of a conversation with her slotting into the niche of self-help. I'm not really a huge fan of self-help and what some of, sometimes that can stand for. And I've read a lot of self-help books, but I can't think of a person or a book I've read in the last few years that's been more helpful than this one in terms of focusing a positive attitude and moving forward with positive purpose. For me, she really speaks my language. It's very practical. There's no fluff and nonsense. It's incredibly helpful. But I am just going to say this before we get going. I'm going to uh, share with you a trigger warning. There is talk of abuse and sexual assault in the context of a positive and helpful conversation, not in a horrible way. But if that could be triggering or upsetting to you, I wanted you to know now so you aren't unprepared when it comes up in the show. So shall we begin? I am genuinely delighted to be able to welcome Evie Pomporus onto The Emma Gunn Show. I am so delighted to be speaking to Evie Pompouris, welcome to the Emma Gunn Show.
1: Hi Emma, I am so thankful and excited to be on with you, this is pretty cool.
0: This is very, very cool and I am very excited about speaking to you because your knowledge, your career, there are so many things about you that I want to unpick. But perhaps for my most excellent listeners, I wondered if you wouldn't mind because I think you're going to describe it better than I ever could, what your background is, what your role is. And we are speaking because you have got a book out called Becoming Bulletproof, which I have in my hands. And I wondered if you could sort of give me the timeline of what about your life meant that you were able to write this
1: book. So I, I wrote this book based on my previous career. In my previous career, I actually began as a law enforcement officer, a police officer, I actually really in the New York City Police Department and after a brief stint there I went into a career with the United States Secret Service as a special agent in the service I basically they have a twofold mission and some people may or may not know, may not know this one part of the job is protection and when people typically think secret service they see the men and women standing next to the president of the United States, which they do protection. They protect the president, former presidents, first ladies, former first ladies, and foreign heads of state. So when the prime minister of the UK goes to the United States, actually we help protect him. So we protect foreign heads of state that come to the US because we don't want anybody getting assassinated on US soil. And then there's other members, chiefs of staff and other people that we protect. So that's the protective mission. The second mission of the U.S. Secret Service is working as criminal investigators. So it is actually it was actually founded to investigate um, and combat counterfeit currency. So on April 14th, 1865, the day that Abraham Lincoln was actually assassinated, he created the Secret Service because a third of the money in the United States was counterfeit, and so that's truly how the agency began. So to this day, uh, they investigate fraud, crime, um, money fraud, financial institution fraud, uh, fraud that's done electronically. So on laptop computers, anything electronic. So that can cover anything that, you know, uh, crimes against children like pedophilia. Sometimes they use online platforms to learn to lure kids in. So the investigative branch of the United States Secret Service is very wide and very sophisticated. And so in my career... I went from different squads and task forces that the U.S. Secret Service had. And then I also was uh, an interrogator slash polygraph examiner. And I would do uh, interviews and interrogations on people who committed violent crimes. I would help local police departments when they had cases that they couldn't solve. I would. Sometimes they'd have a suspect and I'd help clear somebody's name and say, you know what, you're actually looking at the wrong person, which was just as important as getting a confession from someone. And then I also did the, um, I was part of the HR process, but our really intense HR process where we polygraph everybody who comes to work for us uh, to make sure, one, that the, the veracity of what they're saying, that what they're saying is truthful about who they are and so that we don't have any individuals try to infiltrate this service. And I also did intelligence polygraphs. So terrorists, terrorist sympathizers, anything that fell into the purview of what we did. And then eventually while you're doing this, you're doing protection. Uh, But it wasn't later in my career that I went to protect the president of the United States. Now, everybody makes this assumption that you automatically get that you don't. It's a coveted position. It is a hard position to get. And there's an internal process where you have to try out for it actually was the same thing with polygraph polygraph you know being part of their elite unit there was 30 of us out of about five thousand. i want to say so that was very specialized training and then even going to the president's detail you have to try out for it you go through an internal selection process it's a very physical process obviously because you're physically having to protect someone Um, and i put in for that process and passed and so I did this over a time span of maybe almost 13 years. After that, I transitioned into journalism. How that happened. It's like, it's, it's, it's a story in and of itself, but I worked in the white house. I was, I was around the white house press pool. One of our major networks here was like, have you ever thought about doing news and covering crime? And then just from there, I transitioned to working in TV and media. And that led to a different career working as a TV host and and doing that. But Going back to becoming bulletproof, I wanted to write a book that was about helping people because over the years, Emma, I mean, I failed. I had my butt kicked, ass kicked, really dragged through the floor. I had to overcome many adversities and obstacles. And I learned all these different techniques, and I was around very strong people, very brave people, the training and all of that. I've been through four different academies. And what I found is all these things that I learned over the years helped me make, helped make me this more efficient, braver, more confident person. It gave me tools to deal with adversity, to deal with confrontational people, to have discipline over myself. And so I was like, if I'm going to write a book, I want to help people. And I, you know, I would hear people come to me. I'm like, I have this problem. I don't know what to do. And I would hear the self-defeating language and, 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 kind of attitude from people, not that it's their fault. And I was just like, you know what? Like people are stronger than, than this. They truly are. Women are stronger than this. And I was like, this is, I was just some girl. I was... I was nobody. Like I didn't come from a law enforcement background. I had no special privileges. My parents were immigrants. I'm Greek. You and I talked off camera before you were trying to pronounce my name because it's a mouthful. I grew up in Queens, New York. We grew up in low income housing, which means... Poor people live here because they can't afford regular housing. So I was like, I'm not, I'm nothing special. That's what I wanted to put out. And so if I learned all this stuff, you can learn all this stuff. And it's really just like the, a heightened level of awareness, a heightened level of being you. And I just took everything I learned that I was allowed to put in the book because the Secret Service did go through the book. And there were a couple of things that were like, mm, take that out. We really don't want people <laughs> to know that, which was totally fine. And they were very supportive too, of helping me get this book out. And I really appreciated that because this book really isn't about me. Although I do share some personal stories in the book, you know, my personal experience to show you like, look, man, I I ate it. I ate it just like everybody else.
0: I think there's so much to unpick about this incredible story. And I think one of the things that I came back to time and time again, Is that when you are working, uh, whether it's uh, in uh, the police department and you're uh, interviewing people, interrogating people, whether you're looking after a head of state, the president, there's no room for error?
1: No, not. There really isn't, although it will happen. Let's just say there's no room for big error. You know, and when you do make a mistake, like you are held accountable, which is very different, I think. I see out when I left the service, I went into civilian world. I, you do see people not wanting to take accountability. And I think that there's a fear with that. Like there's a fear in saying, you know what? I made a mistake. You know what? I'm wrong. And in the service, I became so used to that because you would make mistakes and people would help you along the way, but they would call you out on your mistakes. How can you be better and quite honestly, braver? if you don't own up to what you do, how are you going to learn? So they're like, you really were not allowed to hide from anything that you did. It was kind of like, you did this, explain yourself. And so by explaining yourself and then getting a talking down to, or maybe, you know, when I was super junior, like made to do pushups when I was in training, cause I messed up, you, you become after that, you're like, that wasn't so bad. And so you, you become more confident and, you're more willing to put yourself out there. And when you do put yourself out there, you will make mistakes. But overall, like, obviously, like, you put, there's so much work that you put into when it comes, like, for example, to protecting the president. Like, you just, it's everything you do beforehand. People see the president walking around with this group of agents around him. And they think, oh, that's the protection. It is not. That's just, like, a small percentage. That's actually called the shift and they're the element they're like that last layer of defense so if the everything infiltrates all the different layers of security and the the strategies that have put in place beforehand 80% of protection i I want to say 90 but 80% of protection is everything you do to prepare and i even talk about that in the book like being prepared like it it's it's so undervalued and people are like yeah yeah i know i need to be prepared for this business meeting and this and that it's like no you you really need to be prepared. Even my polygraphs and I say interrogations, but interviews and interrogations were the same thing from where I came from. Like they were really they were there were methods to talk to people, to get them to open up, to trust you, to build rapport. But even from my opening line, everything was highly choreographed and practiced. And I was trained to be like that because we don't realize that the moment we step into the arena of whatever we're doing, that first sentence you say when you're about to do your presentation or talk to someone, that's what starts the domino effect of how everything else is going to go. And so it, 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 it really is when you know how to execute, you know how to hold yourself accountable, less mistakes are made. And when they are made, you have no problem owning up to them and learning from them. And then still keep putting yourself out there.
0: I think talking about the mistake thing. I know I personally, and maybe listeners of this podcast, will also relate to the idea of making a mistake and then giving yourself a really hard time about it. Like, yeah, whether make it's it, in work,
1: it's true. So, look, make it, own it, move on. That that's a really and and in the service you didn't you didn't have time. Like nobody wanted to hear you whine about it. Nobody cared like, all right, hey, you feel bad. Can you just get fix it and get it done? Like we have things to do. So get over that mental and emotional breakdown that you're internally having. Okay, you're upset. Okay, throw throw some stuff around the room. Go have your pint of Haagen-Dazs. As soon as you're done and get done quickly, let's go. We've got things to do. And I think when you make mistakes, when you fail, whatever that is, that's a good thing. That builds resilience. When you're so afraid to make a mistake, that's crippling. That paralyzes you. That's what we don't realize. We're like, I can't make any mistakes. And then what you you end up doing is not doing anything. You end up not putting in for that job. You end up not speaking up. You end up not raising your hand. You end up doing all those things for fear of the mistake you're going to make. Mistakes are good. Failure is good. I've fallen flat on my face and my ass way more than I've succeeded in life.
0: And when I was reading the book though, I feel, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I misinterpret anything, please educate me and let's get it right. But, um, I feel like you almost put yourselves in situations, put yourself in situations where you will fail so that the lesson learned on the other end is a really good one. For example, um, I'm going to bring that what's come to mind is when you were criticized by some of your male counterparts, you said, well, the standards for women to get in are much lower so that you can get in. And there's something really interesting you said about your reaction to that. You were hurt, but then you said something about the rage took over, thankfully. And then you went and you worked hard in the day, in the evening, and you went and you met the male standards.
1: So what they said to me was true. It was in the beginning of training, and I was sitting at this lunch table with everybody. And I, no, it was dinner. It was dinner, but it was one of those, you know, recruit lunch tables and the guys were super quiet that knew me the group that i was with because i was with the new york crew we had you know we all came from different parts of the world and i asked them, i was like what's wrong and they were kind of super quiet and one of them was actually my friend he's like just tell her and i said tell me what and i could see the guy the other guys didn't want to tell me they don't want to hurt me and they're like look some people don't think you should be here and i was just like why not and he said, they think that physically you you can't do the job. And I, I, I was taken aback because at this point, it's the very beginning. Nobody really knows what anybody is capable of. And I had been judged by a snapshot assessment of what I appeared to be from somebody else. Now, first I was hurt. Of course, you know, you get crushed, you're hurt. But then the venom set in you know, the rage that you talked about. And I was just like, who's these guys? And, you know, then I started ticking in my head because I'm there with a whole bunch of people. The majority, of course, are men. And I'm ticking in my head. I'm like, there was this part of me. I was like, you know what? If that bozo deserves to be here, I deserve to be here. And sometimes that's the language we need. So instead of self-defeating and feeding into that, I don't belong here. I'm like, who is this guy? You know, or whoever it was. Who are these guys to tell me I shouldn't be here? You know, and... I was able to take that venom and harness it. And so rage and anger can be a powerful thing. It can fuel you. I use it to fuel me, but I also stepped up. Here's the difference. I didn't go find out who said it. And there were a couple of people who thought that and get in their face and be like, I deserve to be here. And let me tell you, I was just like, no, that's a waste of time. I was like, what I'm going to do is figure out what the issue is. So what they were saying was true. The standards for women and men to physically go through training were in fact different. Female standards were lower. So for example, a man only had to do four pull-ups for the main test. There's this main test that you take and there's things you do back to back. Uh, I'm sorry. A woman had to do, I think, four pull-ups or more. A man, 11 pull-ups or or more, which independently isn't a lot. But when you're doing all the other physical things, push-ups, sit-ups, and all that in the run, you're exhausted. So... I went to the instructor. I'm like, give me the sheet that shows the standards. And I saw the guy's standards. And I'm like, I'm going to do everything these guys have to do. I was like, I don't want to hear it. Nobody's going to come back to me and be like, well, I I know you got through training. But you got through on the women's standards. I was like, I'm shutting everything down. But I did it for me. But I used them to fuel my rage. So rage, venom, anger is great. Just harness it. And that's what I did. And in some ways, it became my... I don't want to say superpower but it became something that I've been able to tap to tap into again and again. So I can sit there and let somebody make me feel worthless. I can be like, you know, who's this buffoon? And I'm going to do this. And sometimes we need that language. I don't I will say I don't don't talk down to myself. I don't I do not believe in negative self-defeating language to myself. It's like, yes, you're weak or yes, just come on. Yes, don't. I don't do that. I, I, I think the language we use in our own heads is very powerful. So I don't talk down to myself. I've, I've learned over the years not to do that. That's not empowering. That just makes you, that just crushes you. And that's not what you need. But I will be like, get up, move, go. You know, I have that voice in my, 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 myself. I don't want to say it's my head. It comes from within. That's just like. Who's this guy? Get up there, go show him, forget him, forget that person. And I think that's a, when you can harness that, it's a very powerful thing.
0: How do you transfer it, transpose it into someone else's opinion of you becoming something that you're doing for you? Not because what if you get to the end of the finish line and you do the 11 pull ups and you show the guy and he goes, still not impressed.
1: Oh, that happened. There were, I, you know, it's funny with the last day of training, it's not the last, last day. It was like a few days before training. We do this huge physical assessment test and I got up on that pull-up bar and I banged out, you know, I can't remember exactly, but I banged out almost more pull-ups than half the guys in my class. And a couple of guys were like, Hey man, good job. Papalopoulos, however they used to say my last name. <laughs> and, um, the guys that, there's like one or two guys that had an issue with me, they didn't come up to me. They didn't come up to me, they didn't say anything. I even think I may have done more pull-ups than they did. And I didn't matter. That's why I'm like, I'm not the issue, you're the problem. And so weaker people like to make other people, push other people down. And that's when I realized it's not about me. I did everything I needed to do. You're The issue stems from within you, so for whatever reason, You've chosen me because maybe you chose choosing me because of my gender. And that's, again, your problem, not my problem. Because when I know I've done everything I need to do and then some, then I can I can sleep okay. I can walk down the hall at work and be like, what's up? And not have an issue. But what happens is it's when we don't do that and then we feel the shame. Then we feel bad. Then we feel awkward. I put myself out there. I trained hardcore I mean, I trained, I remember I had cuts and bruises on my body and, but with every cut and with every bruise, with every callus, I was proud of it. I was like, this is, this is my, I'm earning this. So yes, they give you that drive, but in the end, it's really not about them. And then eventually you, you tend to see through the noise because their opinions that you should listen to there, there are people sometimes that you should listen to or information you should heed and take in and say, is what this person is—is is what this person saying true? So, for example, when they said to me that the standards were different, I stopped. I'm like, "Is what the guys—is what the guys are saying to me true?" Well, it is. So I can see that from an objective place. And then, in the end, when I was like, "Did I do everything I was supposed to do and then some?" Yes, I did. So that's when you have to step back. You're not there. We're not going through life so that everybody can like us. You're just not. There's people that are not going to like you. They're just not. You can put out, Emma, you can do a great show, put out great content. I guarantee someone's going to write something and be like, oh, that show was terrible. Oh, I can't believe she said that. It just happens with it. So you can't sit and, and dwell on that. You have to look at what am I putting out overall? And am I living by the beat of my own drum? Mm. And that's what you have to focus on. At least that's what I did and I still do to this day. I try.
0: And it's interesting because it can be very easy to focus on the negative. You know, there might be many people listening. But as you say, if somebody ever says anything negative about my show, I am crushed. But I just allow myself to be crushed for 10 seconds now.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yeah, you give it an expiration date. This is the thing. You'll get like 20 wonderful comments, right? And then you'll get that one bad one. And you're just like, wait, what? Is that me? You know, because I'm in TV now. And sometimes I'll see the things people write. But I also I also think it's important that for us to be the gatekeepers of our consciousness, meaning we choose what we let in and we let out. So sometimes I may not read posts or sometimes I'll stay off social or sometimes I won't with my new show Spy Games. I won't go on Reddit to read what everybody else is thinking. It's like, did I perform? Did I give it my all? Yes. If you focus on the negative, then you will become negative. It's It's like eating. It's what you consume. It's what you choose to consume. But here's the thing. You choose to consume that, right? Like, I choose to read all this bad stuff. Like, as soon as I see, like, something negative, I'll look at it if I need to. But if I read something where I'm like, oh, no, this is just noise chatter, I just move on to the next. It takes time and it takes practice. Um, but it's also, if you sit and take all that in, you you'd never do a show you never do anything. I would never do anything. We would never live. Because we're trying to live by making everybody else happy. You won't. And I think maybe because I had a front row seat by working at the White House and being around presidents. I have to tell you, like, and I can only speak for the administrations I was under. I started under the Clintons and then went through the Obama administration. But even Barack Obama, Obama, whose personal detail I was on. And I... I can share this. Uh, he would be up to like two in the morning working. And as a president of the United States, you get so much hate. Whichever president you are, they all get their they all yeah. get their fair share of hate. And then he'd get up there on stage the next day and be like, "Hi, everybody," and give a speech. That takes something. So I remember thinking, if he can do that, why can't I do that? But he's there's no president. That I've been around who hasn't gotten horrible hate, hasn't had horrible things said about them. And yet there they go. They get up, they go do their job. That, that level of fortitude and strength, anybody can implore that. Like, But he's the president of the United States. And he's like, I don't have time to fall apart. I don't have time to feel bad. I've got things to do. And so that's how I've always looked at it. It's like, I've got things to do.
0: And you said, and and actually it was how you ended uh, your TED talk. And it's this quote, the way we look at people. uh, No, it's not that one. It it is how you define yourself is your choice. How others define you is their choice. It's up to you to decide which definition you prefer.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I believe that you define yourself. And if, you know, if you see people defining you by a different definition or seeing you through a certain lens, Be honest with yourself. Take a look at yourself. Do I do these things? Like, am I a procrastinator? Or am I not accountable? Or am I unreliable? If, let's say, and I'm just giving examples, if those things are true, then fix them. If they are not true, or you are good at your job, or you are good at your relationship, then you understand that the issue is projected onto you. Sometimes, too, Projection's a big thing. So other people will project onto you the things that they disliked about about themselves. And that's another thing to be mindful and catch. So you can have someone who's struggling with something on their own and they're not happy with themselves, but yet they project onto you things. And you're like, I did that? That was me? Are you sure? Like, when did I said it like this way? I'm like, I didn't mean it like that. I meant it like this. So that's another thing we to be mindful of, like, People will take their own insecurities, their own issues, and put them onto you. And it's a balance. You mm-hmm. have to be honest with yourself. And every night, I ask myself: every night I do this. I'm like, what could I have done better today? Every day, or if I deal with a difficult situation, to avoid blaming others or putting responsibility onto others, and and because I. I think when we do that, we can't fix a problem because I have to wait for somebody else to change for the situation to change. I'll say I'll, I always say to myself, what could I have done differently today? And that helps me the day tomorrow. So maybe, for example, I didn't eat as well as I wanted to. Or maybe I didn't med- meditate as long or work out as long. Or maybe I didn't finish that project or didn't get that project. I look back and i be like, all right, what role did I play in not getting this project? And if I can see the truth in that, I'll rectify it next time. If I'm like, hey, I did everything I could that was out of my hands, then I let it go. We have to be able to hold ourselves accountable, self-reflect. But then when I say let it go, I don't mean suppress it. I mean, let it be part of you. Be angry, be sad. It's good to live with your emotions. Live with them. Maybe don't show them to the whole world. Go home, throw some things around, break a few dishes, do what you need to do right? Get it. Let it be part of you. There's no shame in being angry. There's no shame in feeling shame. Let it be part of you. Let it run its course through you. And then and then get out into the world and be like, all right, let's go. It's
0: being honest with yourself. And I um, had a very interesting conversation on this podcast a little while ago with a guy called Jeff Thompson who talked about triggers. You know, this whole idea of, oh, I'm triggered by that and I, I'm triggered by this, so please don't talk to me about it. And he said, if something triggers you, you have to run towards it, face it head on, and then it will, it will trigger you no more.
1: I love that. He's, <laughs> I say the same thing about fear in my book. I, I say, if you're afraid of something, run towards it, embrace it, hug it, love it. Like that's, make it part of you. It's, and there's a section in the book where I say, kill fear while it's still small. So as soon as you feel that I don't like this, go, go with it. And I, I absolutely agree with what he's saying, because when you avoid stuff, you make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And then then you can't handle it. I have um. I have uh, an uncle who's an amazing human being who initially just had a phobia of flying. And he just avoided flying altogether. Then his phobia grew into, I'm I'm afraid of going into small spaces. And then it grew from that into, I'm afraid to get in the stairwell because it's too tight to go to the second floor. And it just grew and grew and grew his phobia because he ignored it over the years and didn't want to deal with it. And then it became so debilitating in his life to the point where he was finally like, I I don't want to deal with this anymore. It really affected his way of life and so his is a very drastic example but what but it face what, face what you fear because when you do and, and it's done you're like i'm still standing I'm, I'm still here it's i got in trouble or this happened or i failed my test or whatever i'm like i'm still i'm still okay i'm still breathing And that
0: there's something empowering with that. So empowering. That's what I... That's the perfect word. And I really... It would be wrong of me not to ask you to talk to me about your time interrogating. And really, this is about communicating both with others. And we've talked about communicating with yourself as well. But I'm sure that many people say to you, Hey, Evie, give me the five things I need to know to know if someone's lying. But obviously... It's not as simple as that. But one of the things you said earlier is about being nice and about and it was something that actually came up time and time again when you were talking about interrogating and how actually you were able to get confessions out of people. Maybe they'd already been through four rounds of interrogation, but you were the person who went in and was nice. And it struck me how in order to get what you wanted, you had to put yourself on the, well, correct me if I'm wrong, almost put yourself in the backseat, put your needs apart from the need to get to the truth, completely to the side and focus on the person and really listen and absorb what they were telling you, both with their words and with their physicality?
1: That was a training. I really went through an intense interviewing school. schools. At the time, it was called the Department of Defense Polygraph Institute. And it was the who's who of the best interviewers in the world. And CIA was there, Secret Service, FBI. I mean, they sent... People that they really wanted to be elevated in interviewing and interrogations and soliciting information, excuse me, eliciting information from people. And so that's where my true training began. Mind you, i had been a Secret Service agent for a while, but it wasn't until I went through this really intense training that I realized I don't really know anything. And it's based, a lot of it is found, it's based in science and research, and they really teach you how to connect with people. And I'll give them kudos. The Secret Service, even after that, had me go get my master's in forensic psychology. And they're like, you need to understand the human being across from you. The stuff we see on TV, people kind of getting in other people's faces, all that stuff, it does not work. It does not work. And you can make somebody do something in the short term. I promise you they will resent you for it later on. Because they're not, they're doing it because you're making them do it. And that resentment will stay. And later on, it's going to build and build. The It's interesting. there's a study done in Europe where they looked at convicted felons in prison. And they asked them to describe and rate the person that interviewed them, the law enforcement person that interviewed them. And they asked them, how do you feel about the person who interviewed you? And essentially, they found that there were two groups. One group said, I like the person that interviewed me, that interrogated me. And they were warm. They were kind. They were respectful. They had certain traits. Then the other group said, I, "I didn't like the person that interviewed me. I thought he was a jerk. I thought the person was arrogant, you know." And they were cold. And what? The, then when they looked at those two groups of individuals, they found that those who described the person that interviewed them as likable, as connecting with, that group gave confessions. That group gave that group gave up information. Information. The group that described their interviewer in a negative way, gave up nothing. Those guys gave up less. And so the research over the years has found is that warmth and competency are what help drive people to open up, what gets people to say yes to you, not just in this interview interrogation room, but in life overall. And so that was taught to me over the years, and I began to use it more and more and more in the interview room so it's, I wouldn't sit there and be like, I have this person who committed this horrible crime across from me. How dare he? I could do that. But what was that? First of all, I'm doing a disservice to my job because it is not about me. And it it's not about how I feel. It's not about what I think. We sabotage ourselves so much in life. Like we make it about us, me, our ego gets in the way. And that's, you know why? That's because we, we lack confidence. When you see your ego kind of showing up, that's a sign to you, like, why am I feeling insecure? So so sometimes when I come across very narcissistic people, we come across some of those people from time to time, and you think, that guy's super arrogant, narcissistic. That guy or gal has got a ton of insecurities that you don't know about. So when I see narcissism or arrogance, huge red flag, I'm insecure. Because you're overcompensating Mm -hmm. for what you feel. Because you feel like, I have to be so over at the top. So people can't see how I truly feel inside. So this technique and these skills of talking to people, creating rapport. And when I say rapport, rapport, Emma, is not like, hey, how are you? How are the kids? Or hey, what's the weather like? You can have those superficial. I say superficial because they are conversations that are superficial because I'm sure you've had them from time to time. And you're like, all right, this person's just asking me this to ask it. There's no life in what they're saying to me. Because they think in their minds, oh, this is how you build rapport. That's not rapport. Rapport is a mutual understanding between two people. And so it's the way you talk to people. So true rapport, Emma, is like, I speak, you speak, you speak, I speak. It's almost like this ping pong. And rapport is those moments that you've had in life where you talk to someone and you're like, man, this person gets me. And you're like, you're in this flow and vibe. That's rapport. And rapport stays with you from the beginning of a conversation, all the way to the end. It's something you have to work to keep. And it, but it took practice. It took time. And to truth, I began practicing on my family members and friends and people I knew. And that helped me. And without me realizing it, I was taught to use this in the interview room. I began to use this in other areas of my life. And I realized my relationships got better and better.
0: I'm really moved by that. Actually. I find it incredibly interesting. The I'm not incredibly interesting, but I think I'm thinking about friendships or relationships I have that I sometimes worry about. And from listening to what you're saying, I need to slow down and approach them slightly differently because maybe my ego has got involved or maybe we're, you know, that miscommunication, but you did say something about, um, narcissists and, um, arrogance and I've worked in the media for a long time. And I've been in those situations where.
2: Oh, there's call, plenty of them in the media.
0: <laughs> I call it Julia Roberts syndrome. And it's, I've never met Julia Roberts. So I don't know. I just happen to think she's an incredibly beautiful woman. I just mean that if you and I were in a room having a cup of coffee together and Julia Roberts walked in, she would kind of lead the dynamic of the room. So that's what I mean by that. But when you have a celebrity or whatever, and you're on a shoot, if
2: they are narcissistic or arrogant, they set the tone. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving all of in June.
0: and I have seen in many 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 occasions what that brings out in other people is what can I do for you to make you happy what can I do to get you to a happy place and that sometimes makes the behavior even worse and so I'm just curious based on the fact that you have a master's in forensic psychology when you are met with a narcissist or you are met with arrogance what is the best form of I'm not even gonna call it attack or defense, but what's the best way to really deal with that to get it to a place where both people are happy and you can build rapport?
1: It depends what you want. So I'll give you two examples. One example is when I was in the interview room and if I, have it, I had a narcissist or someone like that, and sometimes I would have a, a criminal who did a, a really elaborate scheme. There was moments, especially with tech, where I was like, how did he do that? <laughs> I call my tech team, I'm like, I'm investigating this, but I have no idea how he executed this. And they would have to walk me step by step. Like, this is what this person did. But if I had somebody in the room, if they were narcissistic,
2: whether it was
1: they had a right to be arrogant or not, if I needed to, I would feed into it to be like, what? Oh, my God. How did you do that? Could you explain that to me? Because I'm completely amazed. And so by complimenting my narcissist, I would get him to tell me more and more and more. Because my goal in the interview room was to keep him talking. And the more people talk, the more they say, the more they say, the more the things that they leak. And that's what I want. Now, that's the interview room because I really needed to get information. So I would play into that. I'm like, oh, my God, you're so amazing. Let me see your manifesto before you killed all those people. What? You wrote all that down? Do so you want to change the world? Like, How do you want to do that? That's one. Now, In parts of our lives where we come across these people, this is where the difference is. In the interview room, I speak to that person, I do my job, but then I'm done with that person. They're not part of my life anymore. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That relationship ends. So I can handle it and do that. Now, if this is someone who's in my life or is going to have some type of permanency in my life, one, I'm going to think of really, really hard how I cannot make them a permanent fixture in my life. I will think about how I can minimize contact. So let's say it's a coworker, I'm just saying, or somebody I work with that I really don't like to deal with. I'm going to try to avoid them in person as much as possible. I'm going to try to avoid speaking with them. Maybe I'll just focus on communicating via email. So I'm going to think of what ways I can keep this person away from me because it's just not healthy for you. And You're not, you, you, they've got their own internal issues. So what I, in those personal relationships, what I want you to remember is if you can remember this person's narcissist, they're saying these things to me, not because of me, because of them. Number one, that in and of itself will give you strength because you'll be like, I'm not the, I'm not the issue. You know, I go back to my, my, my word. I'm not the buffoon. (laughs) That's the buffoon. And so sometimes these like, I use this language and humor because it helps me deal with people because you really strip people down to what they are. Silly. And we give people too much power. Now, if I can avoid feeding into the, you know, and I, I don't know Julia either, to the Julia Roberts of the world, like, are you, do you need to try to make this person happy? I want you to think about that because if we're trying to make somebody happy, are we not just feeding into it? Now, if you're feeding into it in a momentary time because you're trying to get a specific outcome, sure. But if it's a relationship that you're continually trying to have to appease and, and manage, That's not healthy. And so I think the first is, how do you avoid this person? The second is, if you can't avoid them, how do you minimize interactions with this person? And the third thing I will say is, don't feed into the narcissism. So what that means is just be you. Be professional. Be, okay. You know, if they're having a temper tantrum, which I've seen, do nothing. Do absolutely nothing. I had a situation where somebody had a complete breakdown in a meeting. I didn't say anything. I just sat there. I let them go off the wall, screaming, yelling. When it was done, who felt embarrassed, me or them? They did. And so now they've gotten off their chest what they need to get off of. And typically once people kind of get whatever they need out of them, they're able to talk and listen. But I, I just would not feed into it if, if you can help that because you're just making the monster bigger and what you're doing is reinforcing and enabling that behavior behavior to keep going. Because they're thinking, oh, I'm right to be this way. So those are the the differences. And I I just want to be clear. Again, if it's temporary, you're trying to get something like, I was trying to get a confession out of someone, but I knew that relationship would be over as soon as it was done. Okay. If it's a long-term relationship, you also have to ask yourself, like, why is this person in your life? Are you choosing to have them in your life? Because sometimes we're like, well, I can't avoid this person. If the person's a friend... I'm sorry, you're choosing to have them in your life because you can cut friends out of your life. And over the years, I've I've cut many people out of my life. I reassess and sometimes it makes sense to have them in our lives and after a time you're like, this relationship isn't good anymore. Why am I here? So just don't be with someone just because you've been with them for so long. Like, How do they make you feel? Who are you when you're with them? How do you feel after you leave this person? Do they make you feel valued? Do you feel better or worse? Do you feel smarter or stupider? You got to look at all these things. And when it can't be helped, even I'll tell you this, even if it's a boss, man, I would quit a job before I had to keep a bad boss. So again, you have a level of choice. Sometimes I hear language where people like, I don't have a choice, but then I'll look at the relationship. I'm like, yeah, you kind of do. And so just really be again, honest with yourself. Are you allowing yourself to be there or are there things you can actually do that you're not doing?
0: If it's okay to ask, because I've, I've done a similar thing a few years ago. Um, it just became very apparent. There were a couple of friendships in my life that had to come to an end. And so I, I did walk away with what the kids now call ghosting. And I still, um, even though I know deep in my heart and soul it was the right thing to do, I have a level of regret that it got to that place with somebody that it did that we couldn't negotiate out of it that we couldn't evolve beyond it that it had to come to an end and I wonder if you you've had a similar feeling about the relationships that you ended
1: when I look back on older relationships I don't because I'll see I what happened for me when I look up a lot of them were friendships people I grew up with like and I I'm I'm happy to be open about it because it's Things that I learned over time, and I realized that in these relationships, I didn't. I ended up feeling worse about myself, not better. I'd leave a, a, a situation, and I'd go home, and I'm like, I need a nap, or I didn't like the way I was spoken to, or somebody would take shots at me, at at my expense, and or. Everybody else would know what was going on and I wouldn't know what was going on. I had a friend, a really good friend who told everybody, this is small and this is silly, but it was—it meant something to me. One of my best friends told everybody who she was dating. She was dating something, somebody in our inner circle that we all knew. And she told everybody that she was dating him. And six months after she began dating him, she's, she told me. And I found, when she told me, I'm like, okay, that's fine. And, but I found out that she told everybody else, not me. And I was like, and I remember asking her, why did you not tell me? And she's like, well, I just didn't want you to know. And when I heard that, I was just like, no, this is not, there's something not right here. And this is someone I grew up with as a kid. So whatever reason it got to that point, whether I played a part, whether she played a part, whether we both played a part, what I knew is though where it was, I couldn't stay. And so you don't have to tell, and I never told any of these people, hey, I'm no longer going to be friends with you. Hey, I'm cutting you out of my life. I just slowly began to pull away. But I feel, Emma, like by doing that, I made room in my life for new people, other people. So we evolve. I also grew as a person, and I do think I did lose a lot of my friends when I went into the U.S. Secret Service. I went in at a very young age. And so while my friends were going to clubs, partying. You know, I remember, I remember once I went to Egypt with President Bush, Bush Jr. Uh, and the night we came back from the trip, my friends were all going to a club. I was exhausted and I actually passed out and fell asleep. And so when I woke up, I texted everybody or I think it was beepers back then. I can't even remember. It was so <laughs> long ago. I sent a message saying, I'm very sorry. I'm not coming out. I'm really exhausted. And so my friends would get very frustrated with me. They're like, you're not around, you don't this, you're not here. And so I understood where they were coming from. But I was like, in my heart and mind, I was like, okay, Egypt with President Bush or a club? I was like, Egypt with President Bush. Interviewing a, a person to help put them in prison so that they don't rape somebody else. And so for me, like, I chose that path. So... It naturally evolved and I had new friends, people in this different circle that expanded my mind and who I was, my essence. So sometimes we choose it for ourselves. I feel like we're evolving and to evolve, we have to shed people through the process. It's nice if you can keep some people, that's great, but sometimes you don't and that's okay. And I think what we have, like, I feel like you make room for new people. And so even to this day, like working in television and in the entertainment industry, aside for some of those special folks that we come across that we talked about earlier, I come around some very extraordinary people who help me, guide me, I learn from, and I wouldn't have room for them in my life if I wasn't able to let go of some other people in the past. And then I don't know, maybe you tell me this, Emma. I mean, you work in this industry now, you're exposed to all these other new and interesting people do you feel that you've evolved as a person because from maybe those people you grew up with or had relationships with in the past to now, like I would think you've probably changed and grown so much in so many different ways that can you relate to those older relationships still?
0: No, no, you're absolutely right. I, when I think about it, when you were just saying that I was thinking I was in a small pot and I needed to be repotted And that's not to imply that the people I left behind in inverted commas were wrong or bad or small. It was just that it was the wrong soil for me. And exactly as you say, as much as I do sometimes think, oh, I wish it hadn't got to that. Maybe that's just me living in a fantasy land of you get to keep everybody, but actually you can't take everyone with you.
1: No, I I don't think we get to keep everybody. And I think when we try really hard to keep people, that's when we have disappointment even relationships even the people we date think about you know how many people you date or have relationships with because you're trying to find that person you connect you can connect with and sometimes you can connect with someone for years and then all of a sudden that you need to you can't connect anymore because we evolve and we change and i i really like that analogy a lot you said you needed to repot yourself you just need a different soil
0: because mm-hmm. you're
1: not the same plant you need more space, more room, different nutrients.
0: To flourish and grow and blossom.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I would really
0: like to talk to you about fear. And we've already touched on it a little uh, a little while ago. But one of the reasons is because I kept coming back to a book that my brother made me read. When I um, left university, I went and did a postgrad in journalism. And so unlike being on a university campus, which I've been on, I moved to a city by myself and I was a little worried. And my brother gave me Gavin Becker's book, The Gift of Fear. <laughs> and you're nodding, so I'm guessing you're fully aware of it. And I do feel very, very grateful for having read that book. And a lot of what I got from your book, and I really did gain a huge amount from it, was the... Uh, again, like we said, running towards fear, facing your fears, being aware of fear and, but not living scared. It actually addressing it, understanding it and knowing it allows you to live fearlessly. And I wondered if you could explain how that works for you, because you've seen, you've interrogated some horrible criminals that's in in your brain and you'll never be able to forget it. And yet you're still able to navigate the world knowing that that exists. And I wonder how that how you're able to do that.
1: I think one of the things that helped me is when I would interview these horrible criminals, right? At the end of the day, they were people. There were people and they had their own flaws. And I think one thing, one thing we tend to do is we give people so much power. So we take someone who commits this crime, right? And we think, oh my God. And we like perpetuate this persona around them that they're this powerful villain. And they've got, they're a hot mess. I've sat across from some people that did some really bad things and I'm just like, you're the culprit. You, you're crying. You're a mess. Your, your life is falling apart. So that's one thing. Like, please don't give power to people who do bad things. We, we, we make them and I think maybe movies help with this. Like there's these masterminds who like are super brilliant and super powerful. Like they're just not, they're just like a hot mess. Like everybody else's worse sometimes. So that's one thing. And so I think when you take that power away and you're just like, oh, that guy, this guy, you did what? Um, That's super powerful because you're not making this bad guy, this someone who's all encompassing, who can completely crush you and take you down. So and then don't take the role of the victim, meaning like if something happens, predator, victim. And we voluntarily take our parts. It's like, okay, you're going to be the predator. I'm going to be the victim. Here we go. Like, don't audition for the part. Don't don't put yourself in there. But when we're talking about physical safety and and presence and violence, if we're talking about, it. and when I wrote the book, I really was like, this book is about. I took three different themes: protection, reading people, and influence, because I was like, these are the three themes in my life that helped me become resilient, that helped me become bulletproof as a human being, and still help me. So that's why they're like they're almost like three different books in one. But they're, they're all about the same. All of these things have to play together. They all have to integrate together for you to be as resilient as possible. Now, I want to say something. A lot of women will read my book, or they'll read these books, like Gavin's book, and they'll think crime just happens to women. And it is not true. Actually, the majority of violent crime happens to men. Men are victimized at a higher rate with violent crime than women. So I just want to put this out there because everybody thinks it's, oh, it's the women who get attacked. No. So just to be clear, so those who are victimized the most are men. Now, the other thing I want to say is the one crime or the one victimization that women do experience the most, which supersedes men, is sexual assault. That, that specific crime is where we experience the most. We experience more than men. Essentially, almost every other thing, robbery and, and those types of crimes, if it's true violence, is typically towards men. Sexual assault is the one that we experience the most as women. Having said that, you, you can live in fear, but what you can do is live cautiously. There's a difference. You can live in fear, live cautiously. Cautious means when you cross the street, you look left, you look right, then you cross the street. That's you being cautious. Living in fear is like, I'm never gonna cross the street. I'm terror- scared to cross the street. Somebody has to help me cross the street, or I'm gonna put a ballistic glass and cross the street. So what I talk about in the book is to live cautiously. And so to make wise decision decisions, there's also something called victimology. I teach criminal justice, criminology, And victimology is the study of where you look at victims and you look at their behaviors, you look at what they did or what they didn't do. You look at their patterns that helped either make them more susceptible to crime or is there a pattern amongst them? And some people are very skittish about this because they feel like we shouldn't blame the victim. And this is not about blaming the victim, but it is looking at the victim's choices, the victim's lifestyle, um, and, Just environment and seeing, are there any correlations between certain people? So obviously, people who live in cities, I live in New York City, just based on what we see, I have a higher, I am more likely to be a victim of a crime than somebody who does not live in the city, just because we see the stats. We see who our victims are. But also, we have to look at our behaviors. So growing up in New York City, and this is a personal thing I'm going to share since you brought up you going to school. When I did go out to bars or clubs and I, I, I never drank. I never drank because I understood I live in New York City. I'm more susceptible to crime, even though I didn't understand the data or the stats back then. I just intuitively knew it. And I was like, I want to have my wits about me when I go out. And so as a young woman I just didn't drink. And I was everyone's designated driver. So for me that was a choice that I made because it made me feel safe. And if I went out, I never went out alone, I went out with friends. So those were things that I would pay attention to the decisions I made. So we have to look at the decisions we make. Do you walk late, al- you know, walk alone late at night in a bad neighborhood? Don't 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 do that. How, just don't do that. I, I run a lot. I run at night a lot. Um, and there's a park not far from my home. There are moments where if I go and there's no one there or just it, fe- it feels wrong, you know, you get the goosebumps. And, you know, I practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai and have tactical training. I will go and I'll turn right back around and go home. I don't test the waters. So the protection part is for you to intuitively think And understand about your environment, have situational awareness, who's around me, who's near me, what am I exposed to, and then put certain protocols in place to minimize you being at risk. I do want to say this, though, because I touched on it. I said women are more likely to be prone to sexual assault. The majority of times, and I don't have the actual numbers in front of me, but I want to say well over 50% of the sexual assaults that are done to women are done to them by someone they know. Okay, it's not by a stranger. They happen from strangers, but it is someone they know. A friend, an acquaintance, someone they dated, a family member. So that's equally important to share because these are relationships we already have. And so for those relationships, as a woman, if you are exposed to that, and not just... And it just happens to men, too, although I think the reason why the numbers are lower for men, especially young boys, is because they're not reported. There's stigma and shame. Is that you have to figure out how to avoid these relationships. Or when you're dating someone or around that boss or uncle or who it is and it gives you the heebie-jeebies, you feel that for a reason. And so... Trust yourself. Avoid certain people if you feel uncomfortable with them. Don't be alone with certain people if you feel uncomfortable with them. So Gavin De is a great book. He actually in my in my U.S. copy, he gave me a a wonderful quote for my book, which I appreciated. So that's how. So I'm very familiar with Gavin. But it it would the one thing with Gavin's book, he focuses on the stranger. Mm-hmm. And what I'm telling you, the data shows us well over uh, well over. Half of the the sexual assaults towards women are not from strangers. So this goes back to reassessing our relationships, Emma. Who's in our life? Why are they in our life? Are we exposing ourselves to the wrong people? And if somebody makes me feel uncomfortable, what obstacles can I put between myself and them so that they're never alone with me? I can stay away from them. I can avoid them. Listen Listen to your intuition. The other thing I talk about really strongly in the book and there's so many things I talk about when it comes to safety and security, but is do not underestimate your, your ability to fight back. When someone attacks you, when someone does something to you, they're not expecting you to fight back. They're expecting you to freeze up, take the role of the victim, and let them do what they're going to do. Fight back. They don't want a fair fight. They do not want a fair fight. Violent offenders pick their targets. You know why? Because they want someone who's going to go down easy. Don't give them one. And have that mindset, like, if you're going to take me, you're going to earn it. I will fight you to the end. I want, I tell people when they're like, what's the best tip you can give me? I'm like, the moment something happens to you, you become an animal. You become an animal and you fight. You bite, you you poke, you scratch, you take a pen. And this is like that part of me, which I'm telling you that we all have. And I want you to find that part of you to be like, oh, no, how dare dare you touch me that's the part I want you to find and pull that part out of you now look I've had a lot of tactical training I've I've been hit quite a bit so I understand and know what it feels like to be hit to be pummeled to be whatever but what's brilliant about that is because I know what that feels like and I've had through training and through just experiences people hit me strike me and then I'm like that wasn't so bad I'm still here and so I talk about it in my book, don't afraid, be afraid to be hit. The most powerful thing I can tell you is know how to get hit. Know how to take a punch. Not even know how to hit someone. I want you to know what it feels like to be hit. Because when it happens, the first time I tell everybody it should never happen in the street. It should never be for real. And so I encourage individuals, men and women, take some type of class or course where you are sparring with someone, where somebody hits you back. You're not just kicking or boxing a bag. I want you to know what it feels like to be hit because that makes you familiar and you'll see like what your fight or flight or freeze will be like, how you're going to feel when it happens to you. You're going to know what your body's going to do, what instinctually do. Do you freeze up? Do your hands go down? Do you hide? Like What are you going to do? Do you automatically fight back? Know thyself. And once you experience something, it's like anything. First time you drive a car, you're like, oh my God, my mirrors, my... Every, you're so overwhelmed. And then after you drive that car over and over and over again, you don't even remember how you got there. It's the same thing. So I tell people, you don't need to be an expert in martial art or anything like that. But I want you to know as yourself and know what it feels like to have somebody put hands on you. And then know what it feels like for you to put hands on the person. That is that is super powerful. That is confidence. So when it happens to you to you in real life, you're like, hey, man, I've been here before. I know what this is like. I know what I'm going to do. And and that gives you that strength so that you're not fearful. It's really about knowing what you are and aren't capable of. And if you know your limitations, you can work on them. And so that when you are walking around or something is going on, you're thinking like, okay, if this happens, I know what I'm going to do. I know that when I strike with my elbows, this is the most powerful place I can hit somebody. Elbows and knees are where you have the most power. Strike. I also know that when I want to strike someone, I pull them in close. Closer to me rather than from farther away. And so people think like initially you want to push people away. You do, but if you're going to strike, you want to bring them in. It's like when you open up a jar of peanut butter. You ever try to open up a jar from far away and you're like, I can't do it? What do you do? You bring that jar in, you hug it because your, your, your center has your power and you open that jar of peanut butter. I also know that if I'm going to hit somebody, I'm going to hit them in the face because the face is where somebody's going to go lights out. I also know if somebody's hitting me, I'm going to shield my face. And I'll let my body take the blows because if they hit me in my face, that's more most likely I'm going to go lights out. And once your lights out, that's where it's a problem. So all these little things, I just learned through taking courses and training and fighting. And so that, that just knowing that stuff, the next time you walk down the street, you're like, I know a few things.
0: And you'll carry yourself in a way that will make it look as though you're not going to go down easy, as you say.
1: You're not as fearful. And people mm-hmm. sense you, they, they feel you. I'll tell you this, if somebody looks at you, Emma, and you're walking down the street, you're like, that chick, she looks like she's a little nuts. I'm not going to pick her. I'm going to pick somebody else. <laughs> Let them look at you and think, I don't want to mess with her. She just doesn't look like she's going to go down easy. And somebody that doesn't look like they're going to go down easy is somebody who's alert, who's aware, who's got their head on a swivel, who's got swagger in their step, who looks like they're confident. They don't want you, Emma. They want someone who's not. Mm-hmm. They 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 don't want a fair fight. They don't. They want someone who's going to go down easy because if they wanted a fair fight, they'd pick somebody the same size, the same gender as them, but they don't. That's why children are victimized at the highest rate above everybody else, because they're the least able to protect themselves. Mm.
0: The thing I really took from Gavin Debecco, and I really appreciate the layer that you've added to it with that. And my brother is a martial arts instructor, and I was kind of stifling a grin well, he has been, uh, because not too long ago, he did strike me in the face. Not, I, have, I hasten to add- In the most deliberate. loving way possible. We were, we were sparring, and like we were wearing gloves and things, but I did get very, very upset, and I think I might have told on him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm 42 and he's 47, so let's just park that. But, um, <laughs> but um, the thing I really took from Gavin DeBecker was, if you think something is funky, it's funky go in the other direction. So if you're walking down a street and you think the guy behind you is following you, he might not necessarily be following you, but there might be something a bit funky going on. So just get out of, get out of that particular environment. But I do really appreciate that layer that you've added to it. Now I'm very aware that our time together has drawn to a close. I've taken you, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I did just want to end, if I'm going to end on anything, it's, uh, the back of the book, which, I didn't read until after I'd finished the book, quite a while actually. But one of my favourite things that I describe to people is, have you seen the film Harry Potter?
1: Yes, all of them. Okay, yeah, great.
0: I knew we were, I knew we were going to be friends. So I um, struggled with depression for a while and I, act, I acted it as much as I felt it. And the reason I acted it is because I thought if I show everybody that I'm struggling, that I'm depressed, that I can't do, that I'm all of these things, then someone... Is going to help me and I was trying to explain it to my friend the other night and I said you know in Harry Potter where he's watching and he sees his dad come to the Patronus and then he suddenly realizes it wasn't his dad it was him that bit of the film in the book always makes me cry so I then I read the back of your book and the back of the book says this in a world full of unknown and unpredictable perils most of us have been taught that it's someone else's job to protect us and keep us safe the one person you should be able to fully reply reply rely upon to save yourself is you you are the hero you've been waiting for and I think it's per- I think that's perfect
1: I you know I put that in there because we're always waiting for somebody to do something for us and you know you bring like depression and it's interesting it's I I come across people who come to me it's like you know I'm depressed and I don't know how to handle it and I'm just like there's nothing wrong with you being depressed. We, 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 we think that if we're depressed or we're going through something hard or we're not happy all the time, that something is wrong with us. And I'm like, there is nothing wrong with you. This is just how it's supposed to be. This is just how it is. For whatever reason, you're going through something. Go through it. Even with fear, with the, the title of the book, there was, there was arguing. That I was Everybody wanted me to call the book fear, Fearless becoming fearless. And Emma was like, I can't call it that because you're going to have me sell a lie to people. It's a lie. I'm telling people, if you read my book, you're going to be fearless because I'm fearless. And that is just the biggest, what do they say in the UK, bollocks?
0: Yes, we do.
1: (laughs) I was just like, that's not true. I'm telling people to try to be something that they will never be, something that I never am. I was around Navy SEALs, Army Rangers. I was around the most strongest, bravest people. None of those people were void of fear. It doesn't exist. And so I feel the same way. I'm so thankful that you said that because I feel that same way when people try to tell you, like, you need to be happy all the time. And if you're not happy all the time, uh, what well, something must be wrong with you. It's like, no, you know what? I'm not. And there's nothing wrong with me sometimes. It just is. When I went through training, it the Academy, the Secret Service Academy, one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. One of the things I look back on, one of the most empowering experiences of my life. I didn't feel a shred of happiness when I went through training. Not a single shred. I was terrified. I was fearful. I was worried. I didn't want to fail. I I was sad some days when I didn't perform and I'd sit there and I'm like, man, I didn't perform. I went through all these emotions and yet it was one of the most Powerful things I've ever gone through, one of the greatest transformations. I'd never hip, you know, hop my way back home after training. I lived half the time. I was bruised up and banged up. And so I, I wanted to make sure people understood that there's no such thing as being fearless, there's no such thing as being happy all the time, there's no such thing as being motivated all the time. I'm like, where are these people? I really would like to meet them. People, you know, I have people I work out on a daily basis. And people are like, how do you stay motivated? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not motivated. I just I'm, I get up, get up, Evie, go, get your butt up, go, move, move. That's how I get up. I'll put my clothes on and my sneakers on, and I'm like, man, I hate this. I don't want to go, but I just make sure I move. And so, what I wanted to tell with people with the book is like, just be you. And if you're feeling something, it's okay. But I feel we have these standards that we put on people. You must be fearless. And if you're fearless, you're going to accomplish all these amazing things. I don't know a single person who's fearless. I truly don't. It's just a lie. And I was like, I'm not selling lies to people. And so that's where intuitively becoming bulletproof came from. And I got it from because I wore bulletproof vests in my previous career. And it's like, look, the bulletproof vest protected me. From certain things, but not from everything. My legs were exposed, my arms were exposed, my head was exposed, I was still vulnerable. But I was okay with it, Emma. I was still okay with going out there and taking a bullet for the president, knowing full well that they may not shoot me in the chest, they might shoot me right dead center in the head. And I would die. And I was like, well, I'm okay with that. And so we have to be okay with our vulnerabilities. We have to embrace them and just be like, it's okay. But I'm so happy you said that because we wait for everybody else to save us and make our life better. And with the book, I was just like, just forget the world. Figure, figure you out. Do you. It's on you. If you're not happy, please don't look elsewhere. And you know what? Don't let everyone's dealing with their own stuff. No one's gonna give you a pity party. Everyone's dealing with their own stuff. It's just we just hide it all. We just hide it.
0: It's so it's so good to have had this conversation. I'm so glad, honestly, to see that this is recording and to know that this is going to go out into the world. I'm so glad. I don't pleased. know if they've scared some of your listeners. <laughs> well, do you know what? It's like we were saying. It's like um, I've had uh, authors on this podcast before, and we and very much in the in the realm of self help. And I'm never really that good with the stuff that soft soaps it. I'm very I'm very much as I said to you right before we started recording I like it to be direct I'd like there to be no wriggle room because I want to understand exactly what you're trying to tell me and I feel like that's exactly what I get with you and genuinely I loved the book and I think it also has one of the one of the most shocking openings which I will tease so that people go and buy the book the link will be in the show notes because your there was a fundamental experience that you had uh, that I think we can all we all have an emotional stakehold in that particular event but you very much were there and I just think it's a, a, a phenomenal um book in terms of putting all of your experience together and I know you've described Kevlar but it is like it's emotional Kevlar you're just giving people layer upon layer of um emotional strength in this book and i loved reading it and I would recommend it to everybody so thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Emma. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It was such a great time. Thank you. Thank you so much
0: for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Evie. Um, If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com, or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter, where I am at Emma Guns. Trust me, it is my favorite part of the day when I hear from you, my most excellent listeners. If you want to speak to me but you're also thinking I'd also like to speak to some other people who've listened to this podcast then go to the show notes which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and click the link to join the Facebook forum you do have to answer some questions and agree to the forum rules but then you will be welcomed in with open arms by me and thousands of others. Um, who are just gagging to hear from you so join us come join us we're having excellent conversations about this podcast about lots of different subjects and it's a really helpful resource and space and I keep it as safe as possible so please do join us over there thank you so much for listening I will see you on the next one